This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 beer and brewing enthusiasts worldwide. The AHA publishes Zymergy Magazine, hosts the National Homebrew Competition and Homebrew Con, and equips members with brewing tips, proven recipes, and money-saving deals on beer, food, and brewing supplies. Founded in 1978, the AHA remains true to founder Charlie Papazian's timeless advice, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Celebrate beer and homebrewing with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Mike Sabo of Toppling Goliath Brewery in Decorah, Iowa. Welcome to the uh, podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jamie. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your uh, Craft Brewers Conference schedule and, uh, and talking with us about some brewing today on the podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your arc into professional brewing. Uh, you, you started out as a home brewer and had every intention of going to brewing school, but ended up going straight into the commercial world and brewing beer. And you've followed that arc to, to becoming one of the most influential craft brewers uh, in the country today. Um, how did that look like for you? Uh, you know, how did you move there from, uh, from something that was a uh, avocation, you know, a love and a hobby into uh, that commercial world of doing it for a living? So when I was going to, to school, I just continued to fall more and more in love with brewing. And it didn't take me long before I realized that I was essentially just moonlighting as if I was going to become a pharmacist and that brewing was really what I wanted to do. So rather than even um, applying to pharmacy school, I told my, I told my counselor I wasn't going to do that because the way that I looked at it was uh, if you want to take the island, sometimes you got to burn your ships. <laughs> so I was going to go full speed ahead into, into brewing, and I had every intention of going to brewing school. But I spoke with some of my, my friends that had finished up brewing school, and they said, well, if you... If you have an opportunity to get straight into the industry, you should do that because that experience is going to be worth more than brewing school to you at this point in time. Um, so I, I graduated from Iowa on a Saturday, and I was in the brewing industry on Monday. I just went full speed ahead. That's really interesting. I mean, we hear about that now within the tech world, that uh, if you have a love for something and you've, you've done it on your own and uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear the Elon Musk's and the, the Bill Gates of the world saying, you know, you don't need to go to college to learn how to program. If you know how to program, just start going doing and, uh, you know, hop into the industry right away because you'll learn more doing it than you would uh, in an educational environment. And so you, you lived that out. Absolutely. And I, I consider myself very fortunate. I just, I knew brewing is what I wanted to do. I, I still have friends that are trying to figure out what they want to do when they, when they grow up. Some of your beers that you, you still brew today, you know, got their foundations back in your homebrew days. Um, tell me about, you know, some of that evolution. Uh, you know, how did you, uh, you know, take those recipes, uh, you know, from those early days and into a commercial world at one brewery and then another brewery and, uh, you know, continue to iterate upon those? Well, in the, in the early days of, of brewing, um, I, I spent the majority of my weekends just tweaking different ingredients. It was actually, uh, I think, one of the more 
profound things that I had read. It was, uh, it was an article with Tommy Arthur, and he was talking about a, a Belgian double that, that he had made, and he was um, speaking rather eloquently on the reason behind particular percentages of the grains. I think it had right. eight or nine different malts. And it was at that point in time that it just it dawned on me that the only way I will be able to speak about it that way is to experience it. So there's no there's no shortcut. You just have to dive right in. Yeah. And then get that get that experience yourself. So early on, I just did more and more experimentation. And when you say experimentation, are you you know, basically what brewing a, a a base recipe and then just changing out variables within that to to see what those ingredients, uh, how those you know, has impacted the uh, final product? Yes, absolutely. And then e- even as um, particular batches started to have um, an appropriate pathway, I would still push things beyond the limit, even if, even if you had at that point what would be considered a good beer yeah. to really understand uh, the outer boundaries, you had to push it too far. I kind of, I, I speak about it this way. If you're going to try to make the perfect piece of toast, you're going to end up burning a lot of bread along the way. Sure. Um, and so it's really that mentality that um, that I took to all of the all of the homebrew batches I did. Yeah. And uh, less so on the commercial scale. I mean, by sure, the time sure. by the time you're doing commercial, you don't like to burn a lot of toast when you're uh, you know doing it uh, you know 20 barrels at a time. No, that's a little too much. Yep. What uh, what's what were some of the you know what, what beers did you use as that kind of canvas you know to uh, to test with uh, you know there were specific styles of beer that you found uh, highlighted uh, you know some of these ingredient impacts. Yeah, there were there were four main beer styles that I that I'd focused on. Um, one of those was was pale ales IPAs. Um, it was also imperial stouts. It was German style Hefeweizen, and it was also traditional lambic style beer, um, and so if you're talking more along the lines of uh, of a German style Hefeweizen or lambic, uh, when it comes to those style styles of beer, I keep my te- my techniques rather traditional. I don't deviate yeah. a whole lot, but when it came to uh, imperial stouts and and hoppy beers, uh, I felt it was more important to throw large portions of the book out the window. <laughs> How, uh, so one of the things that hits me is that, I mean, you're homebrewing in the mid 2000s. It's a very different world in terms of ingredients at that point. I mean, citra hops weren't even commercial. They, they weren't available on the market at that point when you were brewing. And those are, those are all, you know, what, I guess 2010 ish, um, you know, commercial releases. Uh, how, you know, so that had to be a you know an interesting and different approach, and your you know your use of ingredients has had to kind of evolve over that time too, huh? Yeah. So nowadays, when we have when we have things like citra and mosaic, those are those are pretty fun and uh, exciting hops to to use on their own, and and to some extent with blending as well. Uh, but prior to the, prior to those hop varieties becoming available commercially, uh, hop blending was a much bigger thing. Yeah. Um, there, there wasn't necessarily um, a hop that the overall oil composition just came together in such a beautiful way as, say, Citra, um, as, as Citra was when that was first introduced. Malts have also, you know, uh, changed and become more modified and, and become more specialized and more developed. And, uh, you know, at the same time, also, you know, uh, uh, more is available 
now, you know, in terms to, you know, to build beers off of. How has, how's your approach on that changed over that kind of time? So I, I have a tendency to, to still like using the same base malts and it's not always, it's not always the same. Right. Um, different, different beers have different, different combinations, but as, as far as, uh, uh, Differences in modification. Uh, there's, I've also noticed some differences in, in friability, so um, that can have that can have an effect on our loudering performance. Mm-hmm. Um, that tends to get into a little bit more boring sure. talk, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting to me all the same. Sure. Now, from my perspective, one of the big things that you've done in the way that uh, you know your beers have influenced the overall beer market is that approach to mouthfeel that your beers have such a silky and smooth mouthfeel. They are thick, they are you know, chewy in a, in a large regard, and have, in a long, lot of ways, changed consumer expectations around the entire style of Imperial Stout. Earlier um, in my venture into beer brewing, I would try many different stouts, and I often found myself disappointed. I, I, I just felt like... Uh, the pH was off, the mouthfeel was off. It wasn't fitting of what was described. So it's, tr- it's trying to f- have a beer fit a particular experience. And, you know, you, you would read on the label something like a, a vanilla porter, and that just, your mind immediately starts to think about what the best version of that would taste like. And you think silky smooth, and it should have some nice creamy vanilla and the majority of the time when I tried those, it wasn't. It was just a, it was a dry beer with a little bit of a vanilla extract type of character. And I didn't really like drinking it, so I wouldn't. Your mind starts to think, um, how, could, how could this beer really satiate me and how, how could it satisfy this experience? And that, that's, that's a creamy beer. And so when it came to bigger barrel-aged beers, it... I found it was better to look at what you want the end result to be and start to work backwards. Okay, if you're going to be aging it in a barrel for a long time, you have to factor you have to factor that barrel aging um, into your upstream processes because it's going to alter and affect your mouthfeel and your flavor. So, I, I felt the the common flaw. At least uh, what, what took away from barrel-aged beers for me is uh, oftentimes it felt like the barrel was just an afterthought. There was like mm-hmm. there, you'd take an otherwise good beer and just put it in a barrel, and then what came out was less than what it was before. But if you re- reverse engineer that, even if you have the same basic construction of the beer, but you alter, and, uh, you alter some, some of your other parameters then you can still end up having that, uh, that final result uh, become a better beer than what it would have otherwise. What are, what are some of those parameters that you, you shift for those barrel-aged beers? So the base beer that we end up putting into the barrels, that's not a, that's not a beer that I would prefer to ever release in that yeah. form because it, is, it would be considered off-balance at that point. There's adjustments to bitterness. Um, and our hot side technique is is altered because we know that that batch is going to barrels. Yeah. So if we were to take a very similar base recipe and 
re-alter um, some of those hot side processes, then it might be something we'd be willing to to release. But sure. truthfully, um, that base beer is on an entirely different trajectory because of because of the barrel variable, the time that it's aging, um, and perhaps the, any other ingredients that will be uh, added in along the way. So what does what does that time in the barrel do to a stout? You know what are what are some of those parameters that change over the you know six or twelve or eighteen or twenty four months that that beer sits in a barrel? For us, we've we've tried different barrels um, almost every almost every month is is what we we have tried, uh, and there's not much value in trying anything under six months in barrels. So you you at, sample as your beer is in a barrel every about every month to see. Okay. We we don't we, we have done that at, yeah. at certain points in time, now and don't. we don't we don't do much of that. There there's there's not really there's not much value sure. added in in sampling prior to six months in the barrel. Um, not with the, not with the way we construct our beers. Sure, I mean it's just not worth doing. But over the course of time, uh, aging in the barrel that starts to take these otherwise off balance flavors. And they start to mingle together in the right way. So the the trick is being able to know um, what the ideal composition of flavors is coming straight out of the fermenter yeah. before putting it in the, into the barrel. Because, like we just talked about, it's not going to taste like a like a polished product at that point in time. Yeah. So you have to utilize the barrel to help mingle those flavors together, and that's that's where you can start to bring in. Um, where, where you still have intense flavors, but they're integrated well. And sometimes that just takes time. You're also, I guess, to some degree, kind of, you know, playing a guessing game about, well, not necessarily a guessing game, but it's one that you've now tested and proven on the impacts of that long-term oxidation. Because there is, you know, micro-oxidation that's happening in, in a, any kind of barrel like that. Um, you know, how do you, how do you tweak that recipe to benefit from oxidation rather than to end up with a beer that just tastes like uh you know cardboard well there's there's some interesting things at, at play there and i i won't dive uh too deep into that but in general we try to keep as much oxygen away from the beer as possible during the barrel aging process so we're purging barrels we're we're mm. purging purging all of our lines because there's always going to be micro amounts of oxidation that are happening at, right. as it is. And so um, we also don't like barrels to, to dry out because right. then there's more oxygen ingress. Um, so we, we really try to treat the barrels like, like, our, like our babies. And we have played around with different barrel aging techniques where there would be uh, a, a little larger... Um, incorporation of oxygen and what what the effect is on that flavor and that that's kind of been some uh interesting internal experience experiments that we've done we haven't really uh released that type of product commercially mm -hmm. um and i don't i don't know that we would ever um send a beer fully in that direction but it's 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 interesting as far as um a possible component to help layer flavors. Interesting. So that's that's something we're 
we're still experimenting with. So, you know, brewers take different approaches to, to managing, you know, their barrels. You know, I've, I've talked to brewers in Florida who just let it go. And, you know, some of their barrels are, are 80 or 90 degrees in the middle of the summer. And, uh, and then, you know, of course, the, the Firestone Walker folks and Matt Brunelson, uh, you know, keeps his in a very temperature controlled, consistent, about 60 some odd degrees, you know, year round. Um, the Goose Island folks have a up and down, you know, with their, their, you know, uh, barrel warehouse. Um, different brewers have different ideas about what those kind of temperature fluctuations do to their barrels. What's, what's your experience and what, what's your approach? Now we don't like it to hit extreme temperatures. Yeah. So, um, for the most part, our, our, our barrels are not going above 80 degrees. Yeah. And then in the, in the colder months, they would get, uh, into the forties at about the, at mm. about the coldest. So we, we would do, we would do a little bit of, uh, barrel moving, moving around in the past. Um, and then our, our goal with our, our new barrel room is to fine tune that process Yeah, to, uh, still have the ability to, to adjust, uh, temperatures so that we can have some of that fluctuation in and out of the wood. Um, and then we're also studying more, um, how, the humidity level can be our friend. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, you say now you may start tasting those barrels around six months. Um, from, from your perspective, what kind of, what changes, you know, from that six month to that 12 month, 18 month and 24 month point, like, uh, um, you know, what, what kind of evolution sensory, you know, speaking, does it go through in that kind of time frame? After six months, the barrel, the barrel flavors, uh, they start to finally become friends with the beer itself. Yeah, um, but it's still it's still usually in a in a little bit of a an, an awkward phase for us. It starts to taste pleasant. It's it's picking up. It's heading in the right direction, uh, but in our opinion, it's not ready to be released yet. Generally, after about a after about a year, uh, then all those all those flavors are are better integrated and. They just mingle better, and for for us, the sweet spot is typically between 14 and 18 months. We have done some barrels that have gone uh, longer than that. Uh, that's typically a part of our our SR71 project, mm-hmm. um, and it, it can be it can be interesting uh, the flavors that we do get a little bit further out. So the the beer itself itself starts to starts to mellow a little bit more, but then. We found that we've gotten a little, a little more in the way of uh, vanilla has been um, a more common uh, flavor that we extract after after an extended time period in the barrel. Okay, which has been which has been interesting for us. Uh, we've we've actually noticed that um, in a few of our aged bottles of of Assassin SR seventy one um, that we actually have. Some fairly strong uh, vanilla marshmallow type of character that that shows up after mm. after time, um, and we we don't necessarily experience that as much in the um, younger aged barrels. After after a year, we don't get uh, we don't get quite as much of, right. of that. It's a, it's a little more um, wood and bourbon centric. In terms of viscosity. How does that change over time? I mean, I imagine it's uh, you know you're putting a beer into those barrels that's still pretty high gravity, um, you know, because that uh, residual sugar definitely helps it age longer. Um, 
but how how does that change over time? I mean, normally you're going to lose a little bit of body with age in any kind of beer. Um, how, how do you see that uh, that change over time? That's that's really just where we try to adjust our upstream processes because it, it the the barrel has a tendency to to thin uh, the beers out. Yeah, and and that's that's just part of where we adjust uh, certain batch parameters further upstream to make sure that that balance is right because we don't want the beer to end up being too thin out of out of barrel. You you would you would think that. Um, Perhaps it's more intuitive to think that with the with the angel share loss that perhaps uh, you're going to get a heavier mouthfeel coming out of the barrel, but that that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been our experience, um, and so I think I think that's just something that individual brewers need to need to adjust. Sure. Um, Do you have a target gravity going into barrels, or I sure do. Willing to say <laughs> it really. It, I, I do have target gravities, um, and especially uh, on our on our new brew house, um, we're able to achieve that. Uh, but it, it really it really depends on what we want the end resulting beer right. to be. So um, there's not one firm number. Sure, it really it really just depends on what the end product uh, what the end product is uh, has for a goal. So like when we did a uh, barrel aged chain smoker mm-hmm. with uh, with cycle, um, completely different ball game. Yeah. You also mentioned uh, you know that you do some blending with these beers now. You know f- for for some of your mainline you know barrel aged beer releases, uh, how much do you brew slightly different recipes in order to to uh, have you know different kind of blending stock to pull from? That's that's definitely a part of part of our process because we we take um, somewhat of a, a distiller's approach, where we fill up uh, a large amount of barrels and we we let them age in our in our warehouse and when we go through and we sample barrels, uh, I have more of a, a database where I, I, I keep track of uh, individuals' notes. We have a right now still a, a small crew that helps select barrels yeah. and um, record their record their thoughts so we, we take that and we try to we try to blend the appropriate barrels that are number one ready and number two they fit uh, they fit the brand the overall brand target yeah. so just like just like a distillery would select particular uh, aged barrels and barrels that fit the overall flavor profile for uh, brand X, we we do a we we do a similar type of process with our barrels. That's interesting. So, do you do any like intentional you know different recipes in order to to have a wider stock to blend from, or uh, are you generally brewing the same thing? We're generally brewing the same thing, but we we do um, play around with some uh, various various iterations upon the upon the recipe, uh, so that we have uh, we have barrels accessible to us we don't necessarily blend those barrels um, into something like assassin but we have we have other barrel aged lines that um, right now haven't some of some of them have seen the light of day and some of them have not been released yet Uh, but it just it helps further our knowledge of the barrel aging process yeah um, and furthers our our capabilities for blending should we choose to pursue it that way how how do your 
you know, recipes, techniques, and approaches change over time as the context around your beers has changed. You know, when you came out with some of these barrel-aged beers in the early, you know, 20-teens, um, you know, they were absolutely revolutionary and, you know, game-changing. But then, you know, other brewers start to, you know, to produce similar beers. And from a consumer perspective, you know, what's, you know, once seemed like this thing, um, the the context changes, and so their perceptions of these things change. Um, some brewers that I've talked to, you know, are very conscious of that. And uh, in fact, Henry Monkish was talking about how um, even their IPA strategy has changed over the last two years because the context around their beer has changed, and so they are trying to, you know, to maintain a perception within a consumer mind of what that beer is. They have to tweak and alter their recipes a little bit uh, with each, you know, succeeding generation. Do you guys, you know, approach beer in that same kind of way and think about that consumer context for the way that uh, your beer is perceived? Yeah, and I, I think that that speaks to uh, the multitude of different barrels that we that we've started to to fill up. Where we um, now more than ever we we've got different barrels from different distilleries, mm-hmm. and we have some of these other um, similar stouts, but not the same. Uh, aging in barrels so exactly what the future is going to look like we don't know yet but we have we have those beers and those those barrels accessible to us and our goal especially with with something like assassin is to to layer as many flavors as we can uh, in a non-adjunct stout Um, of course we will occasionally do um various iterations upon assassin we've done vanilla bean before in the past and in toasted coconut and um we did a a blackberry uh version of of assassin as well so there's there's fun things to play around with that but our but our our base goal uh for for assassin is to layer as many flavors in there yeah as as we can vanilla bean assassin now, now that was a interesting case uh where you did an incredibly small release of that, and it became a, a an amazing, uh, very expensive beer on that on that trader market. Are you bringing it back? Vanilla Bean Assassin is coming back. Yes, we 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 had hoped to bring it back um, about a year ago. We had we had some issues getting uh, all the beans that we were looking for. Mm. Uh, we prefer to go with a with a blend of vanilla beans as opposed to just hmm. just one or two. We actually okay. do we actually do five types. Five types of vanilla. Okay. Yes. At current prices of what four hundred dollars a pound or so, that uh, that has to get pricey. It's extremely expensive. Yes. We'd like to see the vanilla bean prices go back down, but um, we're still going to make it anyway. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your hoppy beers. Um, you know, before we started the podcast. You know, you were mentioning that uh, you know you find within hoppy beers that too many people focus on what the what the hop combo is, but uh, there's a you think there's a much more important thing for brewers to pay attention to. It's oxygen and and keeping oxygen away from from your beer. Um, so that that's that's uh, that's a question I get asked fairly often. Um, people want to know the ideal combination of hops and. Uh, They'll show they'll show me perhaps a, a recipe and it has a different percentage of citra and mosaic and some otherwise really good hops, but if they don't have their their cold side their their cellar 
techniques down, then it really doesn't matter what what um, combination of hops they're using is because oxygen is just going to kill that batch of beer. So uh, we are very meticulous about our process uh, within within the brewery. So you don't just uh, open a hatch and, and toss your dry hops in? No. No. <laughs> We uh, we do all of our our dry hopping. Uh, there's always uh, there's always CO2 flowing into the tank to create a positive yeah. pressure environment. Uh, we're we're purging every every single hose, every single um, spot that oxygen could could potentially hide. Um, we're very strict on our purging process of mm-hmm. our of our bright tanks, um, and what all is that what all that has led to. Um, especially when it's executed perfectly by our cellar team, uh, is very low total uh, parts per billion of oxygen in our, in our final packaged product. Do you recyc- uh, recirculate when you dry hop, or do you, uh, are you still just you know, leaving hops into a, in a bigger tank? No, in the, in the larger tanks, uh, we do recirculate hops. Okay. Yep. From, a, from a hops perspective, I also have heard a lot of brewers talk about um, freshness, and source of those hops being more important than the variety itself. How much does that impact what you do and how has your ability, as as the brewery has then scaled, your ability to source materials, select the right materials where you impacted some of the beers that you make? That's a never-ending challenge for us, at least thus far. So anytime anytime we go out for for hop harvest, uh, we're always trying to fingerprint hops that fit with our, our, our particular brand's uh, sure. overall profile. So even if we get some citra that, that, that smells really good, but it's off profile, then we don't head down, head down that direction. But definitely the, the processing time, uh, we found that to be a pretty huge thing. Uh, there's differences in kilning temperatures yeah. and how long the, the hops sit from when they're harvested before they're processed right. and the effect on um, the overall oil content and any changes in oil composition, uh, those can add up to be very huge things. So mm. we're, we're, we're really trying to lock down that process, uh, at least as far as uh, we experience it. Uh, right now, we still, we still have multiple lots of, of citra that we go through each year, and yeah. it's the same type of story for uh, for Mosaic and, and Simcoe and things like that as well. But we're, we're, we're really trying to minimize that and just have a hyper-focus on the appropriately fingerprinted yeah. uh, lot of Citra and having that be what we have for the year. And it, it's helped as we've, as we've grown uh, to be able to head that direction. I know some of the, some of the larger breweries, they're, they're a little bit further along than, than we are in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the that's the path that we are that we're heading. Yeah, I guess there's always an interesting dynamic there between that control and then also the flip side, which is accepting that you know these are agricultural products and there are going to be crop year differences and there are going to be some changes in that and uh, and that's something that we can celebrate from time to time. Um, you know that for for a production brewery and and you all have just you know. Uh, opened your own large scale or larger scale, you know, production brewery. Um, how do you balance that desire for consistency versus, you know, some of that, uh, uh, year to year variation? We've been, we've been known to, 
really be excited about the the special lots of of hops that were that we're able to come across so when we when we receive those and we we really like to shout that from the rooftops and even when there when when there happens to be a lot of hops that isn't quite as as vibrant or or dynamic as as we prefer uh, typically what we'll do is we'll shift that to a different application so we're not going to use um, subpar hops for for dry hopping processes. Sure. We'll, we'll we will um, we'll typically get a get a hold of the the hop supplier and have a conversation about what we really need out of these out of these yeah. hops, and we'll we'll transition some of those over to to hot side application only, um, and then. We try to work in a mutually agreeable fashion with the, with the supplier to find a better solution. That has to be an interesting thing, you know, for you with with staff because you know you're not sitting there and opening every pack of, of hops that are going to go into your dry hops. You know, you've got a brewing team and, and staff that uh, ultimately they're going to open that package and make some decision uh, and be able to say, hey, maybe this isn't smelling the way uh, you know that we want it to. Um, how how do you? I mean. You have to have a lot of trust in your people to do that kind of thing and make those kind of decisions, huh? That's more. That more comes down to a, a general philosophy that we like to to preach and have our and have our staff habituate that, so they can start to feel confident saying something when there is a a bag of hops that looks damaged or looks off spec. They know to immediately get that set aside. Yeah, and they know to they know to look. Uh, look for that in advance as as much as as possible. So even when we're pulling uh, hops out of the cooler, they know to get all the hops uh, prepared and give them a quick visual inspection. And they also know that if there's if there's a bag or two bags that are that are just not right, uh, they're empowered to get those hops out of the mix. Yeah, um, and and you, you there's got to be a fair amount of training. Uh, I know you're a, pretty much a perfectionist. Uh, what do you, what do your staff have to deal with, uh, you know, from your perspective and uh, and learning how to to make some of those decisions? You know, I, I think I think patience is is a key thing. Um, I can certainly reach uh, certain levels of of intensity, but it, but the the philosophy that we that we preach to to every every one of our staff is it's always uh, it's it's about repetition, frequency over over duration is is the goal. So we're not we're not simply gonna um, put somebody in the middle of a of a process um, and just give them a, a two hour seminar and expect them to know everything. Right. They need to practice it over and over. So that's that's part of that habituation until uh, the TG philosophy becomes their habit and. Uh, another one of those is we we try to always have our staff uh, do anything that they can to set each other up for success. That leads to a positive, productive cycle or spiral as opposed to the alternative where, uh, well, that guy didn't put those buckets away, so maybe I don't I don't do this. Um, so we, we we do a lot of work with with general philosophy and. Um, Luckily, we have we have a staff that just they they thrive off of that. So when you started at Toppling Goliath, you were a pretty small pub brewery, turning out you know what hundreds of barrels, maybe a thousand you know barrels a year, 
and you have now built a, you know, what, 50,000 square foot production brewery in Iowa um, to bring, you know, to, to scale up that production. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, the challenge, you know, that you all have faced in um, taking those recipes that worked on small scale and, and making them in batches large enough to satisfy some of the demand for you guys in the upper Midwest. Right now, I, I actually feel significantly happier being on our, our new 100-barrel brew house just simply because every every single parameter gets defined in a certain way. And so a general operator is not going to be capable of adjusting mash temperatures, uh, mash duration, any, anything like that. So we, can, so we can really lock in our overall fermentability and the consistency of our of our work so from a hot side perspective i really prefer that um as opposed to even our 30 barrel brew house sure our 30 barrel brew house it was it was a four vessel brew house and uh it it performed very well for us um but i i definitely prefer the control that we have on the 100 barrel uh more so than the 30 and the the 10 barrel that was that was just a really fun brew house to to brew on that I, i consider that to be my baby because that was uh just a two vessel pub style brew house diverter panel on the front um a lot of fun everything was very manual with that um but any anytime you can just minimize the opportunity for for error um then we start to feel better about that for sure so what else has that larger uh you know approach and brew house allowed you you know to control i imagine that's also maybe improved some of your your packaging approach and uh know if oxygen is a big issue for you then uh then that has to be a big boon yeah that's that's been huge uh on the packaging side as well uh but i might i might take a step back just into the the seller uh what we what we experienced right away when we were uh transitioning to our 200 barrel tanks uh, our yeast would still perform the same in terms of its expressive character mm-hmm. uh but it's its flocculation rate changed, huh. and so that was that was something that we had to move very quickly to to address because we had we had a few batches of uh, of beer where uh, yeast flocculated out uh, quicker and more drastically than we were used to seeing it perform. Yeah. I mean, you're talking uh, brewing these batches of beer on 60 barrel fermenters, and by the time we scaled it up to 200 barrels, yeah, um, it just performed a little bit differently. Uh, we can't have that that hazy beer be clear, Mike. <laughs> that's right. But the the haze is the haze is back. So okay. So we we got that we got that issue resolved. Um, but then our our packaging line, uh, our goal is to transition um, quite a few more brands to cans by the end of this year. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a, it's a more efficient and it's a better process for us. Um, our canning line, it's it does two hundred and fifty cans per minute. Uh, extremely low in terms of oxygen pickup, um, and it's it, it's it's by far our, our preferred method of packaging hmm. over the over the twenty two ounce bottles. So yeah. um, right now it's it's really a, a matter of we we still have some brands that are that are uh, scheduled to go into uh, the twenty two ounce bottles as we get the the artwork approved. Uh, for transitioning some of the other brands to cans. I mean, what we have coming up for for cans is going to be King Sioux, Fire Skulls, and Money, uh, Sosis. Um, we're going to do the the Pseudo Sioux variants, and 
we're, we're going to start to incorporate um, some of the more popular bomber brands into cans. And that's that's something that we're really excited to to do by the end of the year. So as you scale these up, I mean, there's an interesting challenge of taking these beers that are that are you know hazy and uh, you know hop forward, and you know maintaining that kind of haze within the package format, and then you know especially through a kind of distribution channel, a lot of the the breweries that make these sell them you know straight out of their out of the brewery and they're consumed within two or three weeks. Uh, you know, hopefully they're consumed within that time. How do you how do you guys make these um, last through some of that distribution that you push them out into? So that's keeping oxygen removed from the process. Um, we we also have a tendency to um, design the beers where uh, we we've we've made some process changes where the flavors start to really mingle and hit their prime actually um, one to two weeks after their packaging date. Interesting. That's, um, we, we've just always looked at the distributor as something that we had to factor in as an offset. Even, even when we've been uh, at our best getting beers out to uh, distribution, um, it's still two to three days later. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes people might not be drinking that beer until the weekend. So you're, you're looking at a minimum of a, of a week offset at, at, um, at a minimum. So you've, but you've designed these beers then, as you're saying, to uh, hit their prime, not right when they're canned, but a week or two weeks after that, knowing that that's when your consumer is going to drink the beer. Yes, that's correct. Just the um, the process of getting the beer through the distribution channels, uh, we've just factored that that one to two week offset into into our process, so that um, everything's coming together how we really want people to experience the beer when they do see it on the, yeah. on the shelf. So we're, 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 we're less concerned with um, people needing to uh, immediately consume it. It's, it's, it's always our goal um, to get that beer in people's hands as fresh as possible. And we've done a, quite a bit of work internally to ensure that uh, our beer moves out first in, first out. Uh, and as quickly as possible. What's on the What's the thing that gets you most excited about going uh, going into work? And what What are you you most thrilled about uh, being able to do now in the next year or two years with Toppling Goliath? Well, right now we have we have our staff really becoming uh, used to and familiar with the with the new brew house, the new cellar, new packaging line area, and so. Uh, what we have next on the docket is we're going to be putting up a, a second building um, that'll be out back from our our new production facility, and that's where the that's where the ten barrel brew house is going to go, and that's where that's going to reside. So, as we continue to to smooth out uh, any of the kinks that we have uh, over the next six to eight months, uh, next year we're planning on having this this new building up putting the 10 barrel brew house in there that's that's our our opportunity to to dive into some more experimental beers uh and and some of that will end up being uh some mixed fermentation beers that'll be uh traditional lambic inspired beers i i've wanted to commercially do a, a turbid mash for for as long as i've been brewing uh but we just didn't we didn't want to incorporate um any of those brewing styles or any of those bugs to our production facility. Sure. 
So, so what, eight or nine years later, you come full circle and you get back to, uh, to making some of those same styles that you started homebrewing back in the early days. Yep, that's, that's correct. And I, that's, that's the exciting thing for, for me. Um, it's, it's nice that we have uh, this, this great team around us and uh, they, they just really know what to do. And that allows us to get back into a, a creative mode and get back into experimentation. So that's that's what's really fun because that's um, we just haven't had the opportunity to do as much of that as we have wanted um, over the past five six years. Well, we can't wait to taste uh, what you come up with, Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Of course, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy it, then also subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. You can find us online at beerandbrewing.com. If people want to learn more about Toppling Goliath, where do they go, Mike? They can check us out on our our social media platforms, our our Facebook page, uh, on Twitter, at TG Brews. We have uh, up-to-date information on there. Awesome. Thanks. You bet. This episode has been brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, the country's only not-for-profit membership organization dedicated to promoting the community of homebrewers and empowering homebrewers to make the best beer in the world. Brew with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.